It's a beautiful day here in the district, and you are listening to The DAP Project. I'm your co-host, Fonda Elizabeth. And I'm your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. I share proudly undergraduate stomping grounds with today's guest, Adam Harris. We are both alumni of Alabama A&M University. He is a writer for The Atlantic Magazine and the author of The State Must Provide, our September TDPB Reading Book Club selection. Mr. Adam Harris, welcome to The DAP Project. Thanks so much for having me. So our podcast explores politics and culture through DAP, which is a way to say from a culturally Black perspective, I see you. Your book gives serious DAP on the struggle of Black folks to persist in higher education. I felt the I see you vibe uh, throughout the book while I was reading. So we always begin our conversations with a personal reflection on DAP. Tell us, Adam, where did you grow up and what was your earliest memory of DAP? Yeah, so I grew up um, a little bit everywhere. My dad was in the Air Force. Um, and so I was born in San Antonio. We lived in Alabama and Hawaii and Korea and Virginia and just a little bit of, of everywhere. Um, but my earliest memory of, of death was actually with my dad. Um, before bed, I'm um, pretty sure we were in San Antonio at the time I was in kindergarten at Fernandez Elementary School and I was like having issues with like going to sleep. Um, and uh, my dad's an alpha. And so I'd always like seen him like, you know, um, grip folks up and do stuff like that whenever he was hanging out with his fraternity brothers. Um, and uh, so I was like, I want a cool handshake with you too. And it was like the first, he was like, okay, well we start with the basics. And, you know, he, he, um, gave me the basic dap and then we just sort of built on that um, and as a handshake we still do to this day um, but that was like the first that was the first memory I had of like, like legitimately dapping somebody up um, and he was like yeah you just gotta you have to have the basics down um, and, and that's you know you can you can build from there and do more stuff but if you have the basics like you know slide the hands in make them connect like um, and then pop it off like it, it's yeah <laughs> I, I love that. This was kindergarten. Yeah, this was kindergarten. <laughs> this might, might be one of our youngest memories, though. Rhonda, what are you? <laughs> yeah, I would have to confirm that that is definitely one of the earliest. It leads me to think that your dad wanted you to be set up right and tight from jump. Like, you can't go out in this world messing around. Yeah, he's he was, um, you know, he was, he was, he was strict, but he was also, you know, he, he wanted to ensure that we had everything um, that we needed and that we were prepared to go out into the world and, and be successful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also remembering, um, you know, he used to drive me like two and a half hours to go to AAU practices when I was in high school. And this would be like after work or like on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And so um, he was always kind of trying to position us so that we were in a situation that we could be successful and always like encouraging us to do um, um, to do whatever we wanted, but it, it, he always said it starts with the foundation, right? So with the DAP, it's like it starts with just that basic, um, that basic handshake with your, um, like if you want to write a book, it starts with reading, like all of these, all of these, like you have to get the fundamentals down in order to, to do things. And he would, he would, you know, just provide, I mean, he just provided so much for us um, between him and my mom. It's, they really just gave us that foundation to, to build upon. Wow. So our conversation is going to focus a lot about inequity. And before we get into talking about your book in particular and the inequities 
in higher education, let's think about some of the observations that we make in society. So we know that we live in a society stratified by wealth, by race, and we often see that other people have nicer things than we might have or that others have. So before we get into this conversation about higher education, I'm curious about how or when you noticed these disparities. Yeah, you know, it, it's always, you know, I, I think one of the things about you know being in the um, in a military family is I was able to, you know, we were we were kind of dropped down in a bunch of different places, um, and so I was able to see, like, it's like you know when you're when you're in when you're in it, you don't necessarily see, you know. It's like this is this is all I've known. I don't know kind of anything outside of that. And I, I remember when we went back home to my my granddad's house um, in Montgomery, and and like as you're driving through Montgomery, right, you see you know the the the, the town is very like established. You could see that oh, this is a more affluent area, and this is where the black people live, um, and so. You know, I, I remember we had come back from, I can't remember where we were coming back from, but we were we were visiting uh, Montgomery again. And we were driving through the city and I was like, why is there like a, a like lush golf course over here? And, and there's not that over, like, why are there potholes on this side of town? And there aren't potholes on, um, on that side of town. Um, and so like, that was some of my, my earliest memory, but, you know, and, and, the, the more broader kind it was it was kind of the observations of a child right it was like oh that's that's interesting I don't know why that's happening but it's it's happening um and as I you know went off to college it, things started becoming clearer right it's like oh there's this is the thing that's happening in higher education as well this is a thing that's happening um in housing right in Huntsville Alabama you, it's like very like the the divide is very stark like if you're over by AM's campus you will see like around the campus the houses are, are you know a little bit older you go over by um as soon as you hit UH and further if you if you know Huntsville um you hit UH and further down like University Boulevard and things start getting a little nicer the roads are getting a little bit cleaner as you get into Madison um and and so I started to I think those are those are some of the the points when I really started to notice the inequality. And then once you start like really digging in, starting to do some of the reading, um, uh, I did a research fellowship when I was at AM at, at UC Irvine, um, where I really just spent three months reading um, about voting inequities. And it's mm -hmm. like, oh, oh, this this has a deep history. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I think that was that was some of my earliest memories of, of kind of understanding some of that inequity. I'm hearing this theme of reading and as a reader yeah, yeah. I just have to ask like have you been a reader your whole life were you that kid always knows in a book were you up past bedtime flashlight under the covers yeah what reading? sparked it what, where did yeah, your curiosity what, what first reading? get sparked to be a yeah I, I saw the funny thing is I actually wasn't I, I I did not I was not a um I I I did read and my parents you know, made sure that we read. And I had, I had a couple of books that I was like really into. Um, but my sister was actually, the, my oldest sister was actually the reader. Um, and uh, so she actually did. I, my parents used to joke that her vision went bad because she was reading in the dark so much. Um, and, um, but it, I, I think it actually started for me. Like I had, 
I had come to appreciate books by the time I got to college. But then my first semester in college, actually, um, when I was playing basketball at Lawn Morris before I transferred to AM, I just started, I had to spend a lot of time in the library because, you know, we had, you know, two practices a day, sometimes three practices. And then it was like, so when am I actually going to, to you know, do my studies? And so I spent a lot of time in the library. And once I would finish my homework, um, you know, some of my teammates would still be studying. And so I would just, pick up books. Um, and I really got into a lot of philosophy books. Um, and I started reading like Leibniz, which I shouldn't have been reading at the time, but I, mm-hmm. I read Leibniz. Um, I started reading, um, uh, I read a lot of Faulkner and then uh, I read Charles Mills, Blackness Visible. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, Professor Mills just passed away recently, but I, I read Blackness Visible and um, it's you know a broad scope of essays about philosophy and race. And I sent him an email uh, just out of the blue after I finished it, and it was like, "Hey, this was after I got to AM. I said, "Hey, I'm a freshman, and I've been there for a month, um, and I'm interested in philosophy, and I'm interested in philosophy of race, and I read your book, and I just wonder if there's anything else that you would recommend that I read." And he sends me back this like long list of books the next day, and this is something he absolutely did not have to do, like some some random freshman um, sending him an email. Uh, I'm really grateful for it. He, he had like handcrafted it for me. And I was like, this, this is, um, and I, I think I just kind of tore through all of those. And that was, I think that was kind of the spark from it. Yeah. Wait a second. So you went from <laughs> not being like an active reader as a child, like a reader, but not like a passionate reader as a child to eventually emailing a legendary philosopher asking for a book list and then plowing through a book list on philosophy. Yeah. If I won't so, do it. <laughs> right. that, that, that's, that story is a lot more interesting than you recommending Trevor Noah's uh, <laughs> book to me, but it's an interesting story, Ron. I'm sorry. Go, he, just go ahead, shaded, he just shaded me so bad. You had no idea. I'm just going to yeah. back away and like put myself back together and let but yes, but yes, won't he do it? Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you <laughs> Let's get this conversation back on track because clearly we are going off the rails. Okay, so our season is about resilience. That's what we've been talking about with our other guests. Uh, We think of it as the skill of recovering quickly from obstacles, like having a hope, encountering obstacles and getting back on your feet. And we know from reading your text and having gone through college that Black folk have experienced these obstacles and I've had to demonstrate resilience throughout higher education uh, because we have I've experienced the setbacks of segregation, of underfunding, which we're going to get to. Let's set a little bit of the context that you lay out in your book, because we really get a great lesson in understanding how universities came to be in the United States, that they all just weren't here. And one of those, um, one of the policies or the pieces of legislation that was so formal, uh, formative was the Morrill Act. I'm pronouncing that right, right? Morrill yes. Act? Yeah. Okay. yeah, the Morrill Act. And for HBUs in particular, the second Morrill Act was really um, influential of 1890. It was great, but then it also wasn't. So can you tell us a little bit about how the second Morrill Act set the course for inequity in higher education? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so, you know, to, to understand that second Morrill Act, um, you have to understand kind of what that first Morrill Act did and what it didn't do. Um, so it provided um, land for states that they could sell in order to fund a university, right? And um, so you, you have, you go from a situation where institutions um, or states, you know, don't really have a lot of colleges um, to, you know, these, these colleges being in far flung locations like Ames, Iowa, Auburn, Alabama, like, so, so now these places have um, colleges, but the problem is, of course, that black students cannot attend those institutions. Some states, um, places like Mississippi, actually, you know, during Reconstruction, um, use some of that first Murillo Act money to fund an HBCU, which they did with Alcorn State University. But that funding is very quickly, you know, pulled back. Right? It's like a guaranteed appropriation of fifty thousand dollars a year for a decade in eighteen seventy one. 1875, it's reduced to 15,000, um, and uh, 1876, it's reduced to $5,500 a year. So you start to see the stratification of resources there. Um, but but as you as you move on from 1862, um, the predominantly white institutions that had been you know created out of that original Merle Act were saying, you know, thank you for the original injection of funds. Um, it's it's been very helpful for our institutions, but we need more money. Um, like we like we if you want us to do and fulfill the mission that you you put us out to to teach the farmers um, uh, the arts and the sciences as well like we need more money to do that white farmers and arts and sciences as well we need mm -hmm. more money um, and so you 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 move into 1890 um, after you know these bills have been introduced a couple of times um, to get these colleges more money and and um, Senator Murill, uh, ultimately in his in this bill, they end up including um, a bit that says, you know, okay, we will give you more money, um, but you have to at least have a separate institution that black students can attend. Um, and you have to fund that with the these dollars. Um, and so effectively it um, helps states either create or endow one of their institutions um, or one of the institutions, a place like Alabama A&M, a place like Tuskegee, um, um, with some of those Morrill Act funds, but it also gives additional money to the PWI. So it's like at the same time as it was um, kind of creating these institutions, it created them inequitably because you know these are institutions, the 1862s that had already received money from the the 1862 Morrill Act, and now they're receiving more. And then they create, you know, and, and endow Black institutions um, at the same time as those PWIs are getting more money. Um, but but the, the sort of sleight of hand that states were doing there was saying, oh, we will create a separate institution. Um, and yeah, we'll create a separate equal institution, but equal was always in like air quotes, right? It's like, yeah, it's going to be equal. Um, and, <laughs> exactly. And this is like, this is of course in the precursor to Plessy v. Ferguson. Um, so you had all of these, these um, sort of laws. So from the Murill Act to the separate Car Act, right? States were sort of, states and the federal government were trying out all of these different ways to create an apparatus around separate but equal. Um, and then it was, you know, formally codified in, in Plessy v. Ferguson. So one of the, uh, the wonderful ways that you draw the reader into the story is by 
introducing us to these tremendous characters. So in a way, I thought a lot about Isabel Wilkerson and the warmth of mm -hmm. other sons and how she tells the story of the great migration by following these individuals. And so you also bring these figures to life. And one that was particularly interesting to me, and I made her interesting to Aaron too, was <laughs> Ada Lois and Joel Fisher, because she's a real badass, right? So just to give a little bit of a biography on her and then to get to what I'd like to ask you about, uh, she's a hardworking student. She uh, becomes aware of a tragedy, a lynching when she's a child, dedicates her, her academic pursuits to becoming a lawyer, aces Langston College, and then wants to apply to the University of Oklahoma College of Law. And of course, it's segregated. Um, at this time, the NAACP had been challenging segregation in multiple um, institutions. And so they hear about her. But first, they were after her brother, thinking, oh, maybe her brother would be a good test case. So I had some feelings about that. Um, but there was one thing that they asked that I thought was so interesting. They asked, did she have the necessary courage and patience to participate in the legal challenge. Can you tell us a little bit more about why it would be necessary for someone to have courage and patience to uh, sustain themselves through this incredible obstacle? Yeah, so so by the time that they were trying, or that, that Ada Louise um, Sipwell Fisher was, was trying to attend the University of Oklahoma's College of Law, um, you know, the NAACP had sort of um, developed a, a, a formula for how to try these cases. And that formula includes, you know, it includes a lot of, um, you know, legal filings, it includes effort, but one thing it includes is time. Like, you forget how long these fights went on, right? To say that, oh, well, you know, this was decided in 1948 and then, you know, ultimately she ends up enrolling in 1949, 1950. Um, but it's like that started in 1945. Like that's a that's five years of her life that they they kind of knew intuitively and intellectually that she was going to have to give up. But on top of that, they knew the threats and the violence that came along with these fights. Like one of the you know, the last case before her that really made it to the Supreme Court and made a, a really big splash was that of Lloyd Gaines. And, and he ultimately went missing. Um, and, you know, you can, you, you know, there, there are a couple of different theories about what happened to him, but, but, you know, at a, at a very basic level, like a family lost a member of their family. And at the end of this fight, you know, he was writing letters to his mom saying, you know, uh, I, I'm, I, I wish, like, I'm just a man. Like, like not a man that, that's, that's giving up this and doing this for, for the cause of for the race, but I'm just a man. I'm, I'm, I, like, I, I'm trying to, to live my life. And he was receiving these threats. He was being fired from jobs um, because he was taking on this fight. And so they knew that it was going to be difficult and it required a certain amount of fortitude. Um, and, and, you know, when they, when they ask her, Ada, you know, says it pretty straightforwardly, like, yes, like, and, and her parents are like, yeah, no, she's, she's tough and, and, mm -hmm. um, and smart and she can, she can do this. Um, and, and she proved her medal time and time again. Is it fair to say, or maybe you can enlighten us about how women were perceived as 
willing, ready, and able to take on these fights because notably she graduated in 1951. So this is well before the, um, the Montgomery bus boycott. This is before Angela Davis, Ashanti Sakur, like all of these other women who we can look to and say, oh, absolutely, they're so tough. So at that time, were women perceived based on what you're able, what you research, were they perceived as, um, as ready for the fight? You know, I, I think so. And it was, it was interesting because you, you saw in several places, you saw in Maryland, you saw in, um, in Missouri, right? After Lloyd Gaines goes missing, it's Lucille Bluford who ends up taking up the fight um, to, to help integrate the University of Missouri. She ultimately becomes one of the first black students to integrate the University of Missouri. Um, so so um, it, the, the sort of pursuit of, of higher education um, that black women had at that, that point in time, right, um, I think also sort of lended itself towards, um, um, lended them towards, you know, taking on these fights. Like they were, they were pushing, it was like, I want to get into law school. I want to be able to do more. I want to go to journalism, go to graduate program in journalism. I want to be doing more. I want to get my graduate teaching. So I, I, and so I, I think um, that was, that was a very helpful thing. But then there's also, um, you know, is one of the reasons why I like George McLaurin was, selected was because there wasn't the fear of miscegenation. Um, there wasn't the fear of interracial dating because he was older. Um, and, and that was always like one of the chief concerns with, you know, if you go back to the 1860s, 1870s in Mississippi, one of the reasons why, um, you know, white parents were afraid of, you know, enrolling black students at the University of Mississippi was because they were like, well, if you enroll them at the university, that's going to lead to interracial uh, dating, which is going to lead to interracial marriage, which is going to lead to um, the obliteration of, of uh, you know, our race. And that was, and, and um, so, so there were like all of these factors that were coalescing together that, that um, you know, but, but the, the through line and the, the, at the very base level, um, folks like Ada Lewis, folks like um, Lucille Bluford, you know, they were they were primed and ready, right? They were they were educated and they they were were tired of having to, you know, take part in these schemes, right? Where states would pay to send a student out of state away from their family um, uh, just so they could get an education that they were legally owed, right? The, the title of the book comes from Ada Lois's case where it says the state must provide an equal education with her in conformity with the 14th Amendment, uh, the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment as soon as it does for any other student. Um, and that's what they knew intuitively and that's what they were fighting for. As you said, that, that just reminded me of Sojourner Truth saying, and ain't I a woman, hmm. how Black women are able to, to quote back what society in various ways are saying that we're owed. And we're like, wait a second, but you said, you know, I'm a woman, so why aren't you putting out a coat for me to step over when we get to a puddle? And Ada Lois mm -hmm. is saying the same thing. So now that you know so much about her, <laughs> if you were able to talk with Ada Lois, what would you want to talk with her about? What would you all sit and rap about? Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, that's good. That's a really good question. I've never been asked that before. Um, I think that, I mean, and the, the first question I would ask her, you know, is how are you doing? Um, like, like, just not as a, you know, like, how are you doing today? But like, generally, how are you doing? I've, I've had the privilege of interviewing 
Um, we did a project for the Atlantic uh, that came out a year ago called The Firsts, um, where it, you know, similar to interviewing someone like Ada Lois, I, I sat with a bunch of the first people to, inter to integrate public school districts across the country. So uh, Joanne Allen Boyce, who was um, a member of the Clinton 12, um, who integrated a high school in Clinton, Tennessee in the 1950s. Um, uh, and, and, you know, one of the first questions that I, I found myself asking these folks was like, like, how are you doing? Like, mm -hmm. like, you know, having all of this on you, knowing like her high school was bombed, um, like four months after they integrated it. So like, just, just generally like, like one, like, how are you Two, I just, I would just want to know what she, like knowing what she had been through, knowing how she had, you know, traveled that, that legal battle um, and, and, you know, there's always in America like this, this general idea of, of progress and like, where are we in, in progress? And I, I'm endlessly fascinated by, okay, you lived through this. Um, you were a central figure in this. If you look at the state of Oklahoma right now, um, where Langston University, you know, which has 1900 students, almost enrolls more black students than Oklahoma State University and the University of Oklahoma combined, right? These two institutions with almost 40, 50,000 students have like 1,800 black students between the two of them, 18, 1,900 black students between the two of them. Like in Langston University enrolls 1,400 black students. Um, they enroll more black students than the University of Oklahoma. So like it, thinking about progress, um, where does she think we are now and where does she think we would still have to go um, are, are two of the two of the big questions that I would want to ask. In reading your book, I got a lot of tremendous pride from hearing about the triumphs and the stories and, and all that we've come through. And that's generally the case whenever I read about anything related to Black history. But I'm curious to know, as you wrote the book, anyone in particular historical figure in the book that got you heated or angry and <laughs> uh, knowing about how they went about their lives in that time. Yeah. Like, like if you saw them in a bar. <laughs> or... I would just have to leave. I would have to leave. <laughs> or saw a bit of empty alley, you know, either way. <laughs> you know, I, there were, there were several times in, in writing, um, I'm thinking about like the, the Kentucky lawmakers who after, um, after they bring in William T.B. Williams and he's like, well, look, your, your girl's dorm is fire prone. It lacks fire escapes. Your boy's dorm's in a mud puddle. The electrical plant doesn't have power. The, um, <clears throat> the teachers are underpaid. The, um, you know, the buildings are, are old and, and need, need significant upgrades. After he does this big report, the lawmakers who, you know, before were like, well, I've never spared a single expense, like reading through old newspapers and saying, I've never spared expense on, on you know, uh, making sure that, that our, you know, Black institution was up to, up to snuff and, and everything was new. And, 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 and then they're like, well, we have $40,000, fix it with that. Like, like, each time that I would read something like that or read something like, you know, the University of Oklahoma putting up physical bars in the classroom to segregate the classes or, you know, putting George McLaurin out in the hallway where, you know, Thurgood Marshall is like, well, that man is peeking in. Um, like, I think <laughs> those are some of the ones that, uh, that really kind of got me. And then, you know, it was actually, I think one of the, the things, I don't know that it made me 
made me mad as much as it was just kind of jarring. Um, when I was, you know, listening through the the back and forth during the Ayers settlement, of course, the, the settlement, um, the, the Ayers case, uh, so basically the longest running case to um, figure out what it meant to desegregate a higher education system. Uh, when I was listening to the oral arguments and um, Clarence Thomas is asking the lawyer for Mississippi, like Clarence Thomas, he just, just got on the bench um, and he's asking the lawyer for Mississippi, like, isn't there a difference between an institution that has been historically discriminated against and underfunded um, and one that has not faced that historical discrimination? And the lawyer says no, because now students have genuine freedom of choice. Um, and and it, it just made me pause for a minute because there, there wasn't a follow-up question to it. It was just like, mm -hmm. oh no, students can go anywhere. Like everything's equal now. And it's like, like, because at, at its very heart, like that's the argument that, uh, you know, for, for not funding these institutions properly is that, oh, well, the past is in the past, but, but that's not true. Like the, the, the past, slavery, segregation, um, structural discrimination influences and informs our current environment and influences the institutions that we attend and influences the, the structures that we live within. Um, so it's just a bit jarring to, to hear someone just like you, you hear it now and you, you it's, it's the same argument kind of over and over, but um, to hear it in like one of the fresh iterations at the Supreme Court in, in the early 1990s was like, right. huh. Yeah. I guess I'll bring myself to ask the flip side of that question. Did anybody um, particularly seem to be more of an advocate than you would have expected uh, during that time of the uh, fight for civil rights? You know, in a, in sort of a, in a sideways way, the, the president for the University of Oklahoma was actually really interesting um, because like, in a way he was doing all the things that were necessary to help the legal case. Like, oh, we need you to put this in writing that you were denying me because of, because of my race. And he's like, put that into writing, we're denying because of the race, because that that's what the law says. And, you know, they accept it and they're like, thank you. We will go on to the next step of our legal process. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he, he writes in his, um, he, he writes a memoir and of course, memoirs are, are part like, you know, CYA and trying to, to make sure that your, your bases are covered. Um, but but he, he sort of writes about, um, you know, and, and in some ways it's, it's true, like, the, the university, yes, he could have enrolled her, um, you know, run afoul of the law, done the right thing, um, and and been immediately fired. And then they put somebody in who's like, actually, no, the law says she can't go here. And, um, you know, she has to go somewhere else. Um, so so in like a, a sort of backwards way, that was it was interesting how he um, sort of helped that process along. So that was that was really interesting to me. I have to say that also caught my attention because I was expecting this scene to unfold very differently. I thought they mm -hmm. were going to get rushed out of the office. I expect them to say, you know, that you can't, be you don't belong here and get your, you know, with lots of expletives hustling them out. And when he played his part yeah. in what surely he understood was going to be the beginning of a legal battle, it's like, huh, oh, mm -hmm. Look at him. He's providing what needs to, you know, the documentation, the evidence that basically says we're discriminating you um, against you based on, on your race. Um, so as we were reading through the text, we also came across figures who we have heard about in other um, studies of the civil rights 
movement, notably Charles Hamilton Houston. So my understanding coming into the text was that he was a, a legend at Howard University Law School, that he had been this incredible figure. But as you detailed his participation in these fights, I felt my understanding of him broaden. So I felt like I got a deeper understanding of how Houston participated specifically in these fights, not just the headline, but, oh, this is what he did. He wrote that and he did this and he showed up there. Did you have a similar experience? I did. Um, and it was, it was interesting the way that all of, you know, the, the lawyers kind of worked in terms of like the strat the general strategy of like, you know, because the, the way the NAACP strategy worked was first, we have to um, establish that states do not have separate options for black students. Like all of these cases are really precursors to Brown v. Board of Education. So it's like, so if you are to believe the lie of separate but equal, the first part of that is to have a separate institution. And so they like between um, Charles Hamilton Houston, Thurgood Marshall, folks like um, Amos T. Hall, um, in Virginia, I don't think I, I've read about them too much, but uh, spots with Robinson, like these were folks who were really thinking um, about the ways that, you know, they could establish the fact that states don't have separate separate institutions. So it was like, we can challenge that in higher education. I did, I, I, I found myself thinking of, like you said, their, their role that they played in this broader apparatus differently, right? Like, like Houston wasn't just sort of the figurehead um, who, who was like, oh, well, you just run it up to the top and then he puts a CHH on there and, and you move on. Um, but that he actually, you know, had his had his hands on the wee folks like Amos Hall. I, it was, um, I think that it was also interesting, you know, after, you know, they established that, you know, they didn't have a separate option. Um, the, the thinking that went into proving the the sort of equal piece of it right that's what that was the piece that they were trying to get to with gains um before he went missing to say that you know um okay you've established a separate law school or you're planning on establishing a separate law school but how is that equal to this law school that's been here for 50 years when it gets to ada lewis simple fisher um okay you're going to establish a separate law school at langston university that you've rushed into existence in five days hired three faculty members for part-time work for what will be a full-time job but that's equal to the university of oklahoma's college of law which is has been around, um, you know, since since the early 1900s, late 1800s, and so, um, yeah, I think just just how active they were in this sort of initial strategic planning of it all was just fascinating to me. A lot of times when we hear talks about HBCUs, the question of relevance always arises. Uh, something to the effect of, are HBCUs even still necessary? Uh, my question is not whether HBCUs are necessary, uh, because of, personally, I believe absolutely they are. But I am curious, what assumptions might someone be making to even ask that question? I think one of the first assumptions is that HBCUs are um, uh, exclusionary. Um, when in reality, HBCUs were like some of the first open access, like access institutions, like, right, these were institutions that were created to actually enroll everyone else that the, the exclusionary institutions were not um, enrolling. And, and um, you know, most HBCUs, of course, are, are still overwhelmingly Black, but they do enroll, you know, shares of white students. There's some HBCUs that have flipped into big majority, um, um, majority white campuses or, or you know, majority um, yeah, uh, majority, you know, white campuses. I, I think the, the second is that people think of HBCUs 
as like some parochial offshoot of higher education rather than like an integral part of it, right? So this is these are institutions that, um, you know, they make up like 3% of the nonprofit four-year colleges in the nation. Um, and yet they produce like 25% of black STEM graduates and 50% of black lawyers and doctors and 80% of black judges, right? They're still playing an integral role in educating the black middle class. But on top of that, they're playing an integral role <clears throat> continue to play an integral role in educating folks um, that the majority of higher education or that, that the majority of, um, you know, the, the well-funded uh, you know, institutions in higher education don't. Um, if you look at a state like North Carolina, where, you know, if you go survey the public institutions, 22% of Black students who attend college in the state of North Carolina, public college in North Carolina, do so at one of the 12 PWIs, um, public PWIs. 25% uh, do so at one of the five HBCUs, public HBCUs, and 52% do so at um, one of the public community colleges. Um, so if you're in public institutions, you're more likely to be at an HBCU or a um, community college than you are at one of the 12 public PWIs. So like the fact that these institutions are still doing so much and then also educating something like 62% um, 62 of students who attend HBCUs are Pell eligible, so eligible for grants for low-income students, right? They're still facilitating this very important role and yet um, they, don't, they don't get the funding they deserve. I think the, the last thing that I'll add is that the institutions have been able to do so much with so little, um, right? The, the fact that they have been um, that they've been discriminated against when it comes to funding. Um, a place like North Carolina A&T is the third highest research producing public institution in the state of North Carolina. Um, and yet, when it made its jump from becoming, um, you know, just like a, a normal R2 to becoming a high research producing activity institution, um, it didn't receive any, any funding. Um, this is the early 2000s, it didn't receive any additional funding to make that jump. Two PWIs did the same thing just a couple of years later and received $10 million a piece to make that jump. Um, and yet H, uh, North Carolina A&T is coming just behind uh, UNC Chapel Hill and North Carolina State. As, as a research producing institution. Um, and yet it didn't receive that additional funding. So they've been able to do so much with so little. And you have to think, right. like, what would they have been able to do if they weren't discriminated against? I have a quick question about that. So what does that tell you about what legislatures believe about HBCUs and about higher education or the people who attend those schools? You know, I, I think one of the things is you know, the fact that HBCUs have been able to do so much with so little, I think legislators sometimes lean on that to be like, well, you don't, clearly you don't need that extra if you're, if you're still able to do all of that. Um, but also, you know, for, for so long, lawmakers have played this sort of game of saying, um, oh yeah, well, we will, we actively support our HBCUs. Of course we support our HBCUs. And then when it comes time to, you know, fork over some money for the institutions, they're like, well, um, well, actually, you know, we don't, we don't have that. But the, the interesting thing is like, I've used this analogy of, of like, you know, if you guys had have given, like, it's like a toothbrush, right? If you, if you brush your teeth every day, you know, you go to the dentist, they check you out. They're like, everything's fine. You know, you can keep on pushing. Say that the place that was given the toothbrush was UNC Chapel Hill. And UNC's just been brushing and brushing. And, you know, they get their, you know, they, oh, they got braces too. And then they, you know, they get, got the whitening. Um, but North Carolina A&T, North Carolina Central, um, uh, Elizabeth City State were denied the toothbrush. And so they got a cavity. 
And then they were denied the surgery for the cavity or the, the, you know, to get a filling. And then that turned into a root canal. And so now they're like, we need root canal money. And the state's like, well, we can give you a toothbrush. Can you fix it with that? And it's like, like at, at a very root, that's where like, you know, that sort of deferred maintenance over time adds up, right? There are billions of dollars in deferred maintenance on um, historically Black campuses because states have underfunded them for so long and not provided for them the basic upkeep. And so, um, it, and so now when they go back and they're like, well, you know, we would like the basic upkeep plus a little bit, they're like, well, all we can give you is the basic upkeep. Um, and so without addressing kind of all of the other um, systemic factors that are public policy's fault um, because yeah. they didn't give them that, that little bit of help that they were supposed to give them at the very beginning. Yeah, sticking with your analogy, I want to say that the toothbrush factory is, is can be compared to the endowment of uh, these, these colleges and, and universities. Uh, the size of an endowment is a frequent data point used to compare HBCUs and PWIs. Uh, our alma mater, uh, our endowment of Alabama A&M is about $50 million with approximately 5,000 students. Uh, comparatively, the University of Alabama endowment is $832 million uh, with 37,840 students. And, and then the school up the road from A&M is uh, at UAB, uh, University of Alabama Huntsville is about $80 million. Even with a larger student population, uh, the endowment is disproportionately larger than the, the state HBCU in Alabama. Uh, for folks who are not experts in the nuances of higher education financing, what is the importance of an endowment? So an endowment, um, think of an endowment as like, uh, uh, as like leverage, right? So, so it helps in, in all different types of ways. So um, whether that is getting credit, um, saying that, you know, I have this collateral um, sitting on the side, right? It's more expensive for HBCUs to, to actually take on, it's actually more expensive for them to take on loans because they don't have that additional collateral. Um, and, and what an endowment does, it, allow, it allows an institution to plan for the future. Um, to say that, okay, we, we know that we have this bank, it's, it's appropriated to all these different things, right? That, you know, this part is for the endowed chair and, and whatever it might be. This is for like um, this, this building that was built and that it's like for the upkeep and routine maintenance of that building. Um, so like some things are tagged, but other things like are just like unrestricted bequests and it just allows the institution to be able to, to do more, right? Um, and one of the things I was, I spoke with um, President Ruth Simmons down at Prairie View just, uh, I guess, last week um, for the uh, Texas Tribune Festival. And, and one of the things that um, she was talking about, right, so some HBCUs received the large um, philanthropic gifts from McKinsey Scott last year. Um, and the majority of that gift, other than the things that were like tabbed off, um, that President Simmons said, you know, I put that money directly into the university's endowment. People are like, well, why didn't you just kind of use it now? She said, because this will allow us to plan for the future. It'll allow us um, the space to say that, okay, if we can have, you know, um, a couple of million dollars each year in returns on investment from our endowment, then we can, you know, spend down like 10% of that each year. A place like Harvard makes a billion dollars a year on endowment invest investments from its endowment. It makes a billion dollars a year. Um, and so, you know, an endowment just really allows institutions to, to be able to, to do more and, and, you know, think long-term rather than just in the moment. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think of the McKenzie Scott donation and there are tons of donations going to the Thurgood Marshall Foundation, the United Negro College Fund, uh, the Morehouses and Spellmans of the world. And we know that all of that stemmed from uh, the murder of George Floyd and the and the Black Lives Matter movement and protests that, that came from that. So it, it, it speaks to a one-off. It's not a, a systemic uh, contributions to our HBCUs or to these Black institutions to, to strengthen us. Um, what innovations are HBCUs making in the area of development? Hmm. Um, so, you know, a lot of HBCUs are, are working on partnerships, um, trying to, to, you know, leverage the resources that they do have, um, which is often, you know, things like their, their land. A lot of HBCUs will have, you know, a decent plot of land around them. So they're working to develop that land, working to, to bring businesses in to help develop that land. Um, some institutions, you know, trying to, to capacity build, right? Making more space for more students, a lot of um, private HBCUs in particular are, are going to be tuition driven and tuition dependent. So um, they're going to need to have a, a larger student body in order to be, um, and, and not, you know, we're not thinking like 30,000 students at a private institution, but to have um, a student body that allows them to, to, you know, do a little bit more. But, um, and as you, as you mentioned, um, one of the things you were talking about in, in terms of the, the sort of one-offs um, is that there, you know, there are ebbs and flows in philanthropy as well. So like, you know, there was a really big push, like big philanthropic push for HBCUs in black places to educate black students in the 1860s, 1870s, and then the 1880s rolled around and people, you know, white philanthropists. And um, they were like, well, actually we don't, we don't um, want to do that anymore. And so the philanthropy dries up. And so you always have to worry too about um, how long philanthropy is going to be, be sustainable. But uh, the, the, the other thing to, to the point about general development, I know that there's been a big push um, for federal legislation that will, um, will help to alleviate some of that financial pressure. Um, so uh, Representative Alma Adams has a bill that's working its way through Congress right now called the Ignite Act that um, really digs into the infrastructure piece of all of that to help HBCUs deal with some of that deferred maintenance. Um, and then uh, just, just very recently, there was a paper out um, from the Century Foundation that, that dug into endowments and suggested a $40 billion endowment. Denise, Denise Smith is the, the researcher and she, she suggested a $40 billion endowment um, for HBCUs from the federal government. Um, and, and that would allow, you know, across the hundred HBCUs that would allow them to, to plan for the future. And so, you know, we're in this moment where HBCUs are kind of really in the spotlight. Um, and I think that the institutions and their leaders and their advocates are really trying to seize on that in order to, to ensure the longevity of these institutions that are still doing such important work. Plus reparations. Plus reparations. So you and I, we both have black daughters. Two each, uh, mm. super cute pictures that I see uh, recently on uh, Instagram. Uh, according to Rana, that's the fatherhood flex. You know, you post <laughs> pictures of your daughter, uh, fatherhood flex over here. <laughs> uh, it is. So they, our, our kids are going to find themselves or may find themselves crossing the threshold of their dorm rooms in the next eight to 16 years. Um, those won't be the same barriers that Ada Lewis, uh, Scipio Fisher encountered. Mm. Um, but barriers still exist uh, as Black folks. Um, what do you see are the main policy or funding measures that should be put in place? Or, and you kind of mentioned in, in your last statement, but in order for, uh, for the college education of our girls to be more equal to, uh, 
their white male counterparts or just in general? Yeah, I, I think one thing, um, particularly for states, I think that they should reassess, um, you know, like things like performance-based funding models, right? So there are these, these models that um, do not, like the way that states fund colleges are built on metrics that do not um, fund institutions that are doing work of educating low-income students, educating Black students. Um, they, they, they basically almost in some ways kind of penalize those institutions. Um, for having lower enrollments, right? In a place like Kentucky, um, you know, a place like the University of Kentucky is going to get a larger piece of the pie, even though it enrolls fewer low-income students, even though it enrolls fewer Black students in a place like Kentucky State or a place like, um, even like Moorhead State, like, right, not an HBCU, but a place that is still um, um, educating a, a decent share of, of Black students. Um, so I think reassessing those models so that equity is a is a focus of of them, right? To have so so you know your proportion of low income students, your proportion of Black students actually plays a role in the amount of funding that you are getting, rather than saying, oh well, we have a bunch of students from the top, you know, five percent of of wealth earners, and so you know of course they're probably going to do well because they're going you know they might have the additional resources in order to have additional tutoring, all of those different things, and then the institutions that are able to have the, the wraparound services that, you know, HBCU professors work extra hard to be able to provide. I'm, I'm remembering times when, you know, my professors would, I was like, I'm just kind of hungry. And they're like, well, you know, here's, here $5, here's $5. You can run to McDonald's really quickly. You can take my car, like, you know, um, and yeah. all this different stuff. And like the, the, the sort of wraparound services that, that um, HBCUs are, are trying to provide would be aided better if, if they had additional funding. Um, I think the other thing too is, is you know, as I, I write in the book, um, you know, we should really start thinking kind of critically about the role that, um, you know, predominantly white institutions that benefited, um, you know, from you know being like sort of lavish with funding during slavery, during segregation, while they were shutting black students out. What did these institutions owe to the institutions that were actually enrolling um, uh, and educating black students? Um, and a lot of these schools. Um, well, some of these schools have done, you know, the study of saying that, um, you know, the University of Virginia did one there. He said, you know, Thomas Jefferson could not have imagined a University of Virginia without slavery at its core. Um, Georgetown University sold 272 people to literally keep its institution alive. Um, and so, you know, the fact that they have created this sort of $4 million fund now that will, you know, help some of the descendants of the folks who, who were sold to, to sustain their institution is a good start. But, but I think that you also have to start looking, um, looking beyond that to say, okay, how, how do we help the institutions um, that were doing that work when we, when we were not? Um, and I think, you know, if you take those two things, the kind of public policy piece and the, the, the sort of private piece from, from the individual institutions, I think that that ends up moving you to, to a better place. And I mean, I've, I'm working on my wife now to, to you know, trying to get her to, to trying to get the girls to aid. <laughs> so we think it's important to tell our own stories. You wrote this book with a significant amount of personal experience. What did your firsthand knowledge add to the telling of this story. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because 
when I when I joined the Chronicle, um, you know, I sort of surveyed. You know, there was like HBCU Digest. It was like the the place that was doing you know consistent. So like Jared Carter was like the person who was doing consistent reporting on HBCUs, and then everywhere else, like from the Times to the Post, to it, it, I just didn't didn't see it anywhere. Um, and I remember when I got to the Chronicle saying I would like to cover HBCUs because I, I I have a, a like I have a, an understanding of the institutions and understanding of the way they work and an understanding of how they got to this place. And, and so when I started writing the book, um, that sort of legacy and the understanding of the care that the institutions provided to their students, right? My dad first went to, to um, he first went to a PWI um, and then went to Alabama State. He often talks about like the nurturing he got from his like math professors. And, um, uh, you know, when he was hungry, they would, they would um, uh, professors would, would, you know, give him food. And that was the same experience that I had at, when I was at a &M. My mom went to a &M. My, my uh, uncle went to a &M. um, My cousin was on campus at the same time as I was. My sister was there at the same time that I was. Um, I, it was, I think that personal experience of knowing how much the institutions do for students and what they provide for students, and the fact that that um, they were they have not been provided for historically by the state, by the federal government, by um, philanthropists, um, it, it, it sort of created a disconnect that I was trying to to write through and write together, like trying to understand what the institutions are doing and have historically done. And why the broader higher education apparatus doesn't recognize them with the same funding for doing that work. Um, and so, yeah, I think that personal experience from, you know, really from like the, the seeds of the book and like planting the idea about, you know, like, why does my campus look so different than UAH to, to actually figuring that out and answering that question. Um, you know, I, I, the book doesn't happen if not for, for that personal experience. We have a couple rapid fire questions that okay. we're going to ask to close out. Um, what are you currently reading? So I am currently reading A Sweet Land of Liberty by Thomas Sugru. Um, awesome? Yeah, so so it is. Um, it's actually an, it's an older book, um, and it is uh, basically an examination of the civil rights movement and. Um, uh, in the North. Um, I'm also reading uh, We Are Not Broken mm -hmm. by Eric Garcia, um, uh, uh, sort of about, about autism and sort of changing the conversation around autism. Um, uh, and then uh, my friend, um, Kat Chow's uh, new memoir um, is, is, I haven't, haven't had a chance to start it yet, but I'm, I'm very excited to, to jump in. That book on the Civil War is super thick. Just, <laughs> no, it's, just it is it is not it is not small um and also will, yeah it's a thick and how big is the print uh <laughs> no, no they, you could tell they by the body they that that's some thin print yeah the smallest stuff they could they could do um and you know it's it's interesting because a book like this i will probably i i have to take like um it's like i'll do 100 pages um, and then it's like, I'm gonna take a break for a couple of days and I'm gonna read other stuff. Um, I did like a Faulkner study earlier this year where I was just like, like during my breaks, I'm just gonna read Faulkner. Or like during my breaks, I'm just gonna read Baldwin. And that's just the thing that, cause you know, different writers teach you different things. Um, you know, Faulkner was really great at the big, 
um, like the big sentence and like, you know, he's, he's taking you on a journey, but you land in a place that's like, oh, that's fascinating. Um, a person like Joe Lepore is going to give you a book that's like thick, but you read her sentences and they're short and they're punchy and they're like, um, they're just like really juicy sentences. And so, um, yeah, you learn something different from every, everybody you read. Who's on your academic writer group text? <laughs> My academic writer group text. Um, uh, <laughs> Oh, actually, it's probably just my writer group text. It's probably um, Clint, uh, Clint Smith, uh, Van Newkirk, Hannah Georges, and Caitlin Dickerson. So like most of my folks from the Atlantic and Adam Serpent. Yeah. The Atlantic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, similar question, but I was going to ask who are the peers and mentors that you leaned on as you were writing The State Must Provide? So, so one of the folks who, you know, was one of my best friends uh, is actually my daughter's um, godfather, Aset Herndon. Um, as a reporter for the New York Times, um, from like when I first told him at Lucky Bar uh, in DC in 2017, it's probably February 2017, I was like, I think I want to write a book. Um, and he was like, man, do it. And I was like, oh, okay. And like every step of the way, he was like always kind of encouraging me. And then like um, I met Clint, I met Van, and um, I met Adam and we just sort of started talking through the book as we were like working in the process. Cause you know, me, um, Clint and Adam's books all came out. Um, Clint's was in June, Adam's was late June and mine was in August. So like we were all working through the process at the same time. So like to have a small community of folks uh, just to talk to um, about the book writing process and knowing how you know lonely of an experience it is um, was, was, was nice. I love that story. And I know where Lucky Bar is. <laughs> we're going to go have a drink just to toast. This is water. Yeah. We're going to go have a drink just to... Um, we definitely should. To cheers to that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. We, we sat basically in the same booth. So you know where the beef, like if you're, you're looking at the bar, there's like those two booths that are like against the wall, like that back wall. So we would sit in either that first or the second one. We get very upset when either of them were taken. <laughs> <laughs> it's like old men getting in. Yeah, it's like, hey, what are we <laughs> like, where could we possibly sit now? Right. That our there are all booth? these other seats, but our boots are taken. That's where the magic happens. That's where the magic right. happens. Exactly. Right. So, the answer to this question may be that uh, piece of vinyl that you pulled out earlier. But if you write uh, to music, uh, what is on your playlist? Yeah. So, um, oh, I don't know if I write to music. So I write to Roberta Flack. I write to Alberta Hunter. A lot of times I will just put John Coltrane's Alabama on repeat. And um, it's just like, I don't know. It's just something about it. Like the, from the initial timber to the, and like, I don't know. It's something about that song just kind of puts me in a mood and it doesn't have any words. It's just like, but you can hear that he's like, he's singing and like there's there's like a pain behind it if it's not like something on the actual record player then i will just put that song on repeat and yeah. just go i love it <laughs> we have so much more that we could talk with you about but yeah. thank you so much for this delightful conversation our personal intention was that this would be one of the most memorable book talks that you gave so I hope it was that because we know you gave a lot. You talked to a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of Absolutely. things happen on their book talks too. We have folks losing internet connections. <laughs> and uh, I, 
was looking for Biko. Like Biko didn't come in, oh, my in the so, middle of our book talk. I've moved. Uh, so Biko's his his bed usually sits right here. Um, and I, we had some Atlantic Live events, so he he's in the other room. Oh God! So he couldn't he couldn't make any couldn't cameos. See. Yeah, I did. I did learn about a new Irish whiskey, which I will be getting in the near future. Oh, <laughs> that's right. From drinking with historians, we watched that one too. So we were like, oh, okay, this is how yeah, it's going. Absolutely. We're gonna yeah. flip it up. Yeah, and I appreciate it. The questions were fantastic. So thank you. Um, yeah, it was fresh questions. But I I really love that. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your time and wish you all the best. Likewise. Thank you. Have a good evening. Talk to you soon. Ciao. Oh my goodness. What a great conversation. Adam Harris loves Roberta Flack. That's all I need to know. Yes, he does. And he also loves Coltrane's Alabama. Let me cue that up right now. Thank you, Adam, for joining us on the DAP Project to discuss the culture, the history of inequity and access to higher education, and importantly, the determination to pursue higher education. We encourage you to purchase and read The State Must Provide. Snap a photo and tag us on Instagram. Yes, please do all of those things and... Join us for our October read from author Maurice Carlos Ruffin. We will go cover to cover in his latest two offerings, The Ones Who Say They Love You and We Cast a Shadow. Maurice is a New Orleans native and award-winning writer. We hope you will join us this month as we read. I'm really excited about reading Ruffin's work as well, especially in October, because there are some horror themes that I believe are laced in there. In the meantime... Thank you for listening to The DAP Project. We love y'all. You can find more great TVP on Instagram at the.dap.project and on our website at thedapproject.com. Listen, like, subscribe to our podcast, refer a friend, read the newsletter, do all the things that the cool kids do. And remember, resistance is a highway with many lanes. We hope you find yours.